You're listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio. Novelist Annie Leonis and author Jeff Parker came to UMass as part of the Visiting Writers series. This was recorded Thursday, February 18th at Memorial Hall at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Yeah, before we get started, thank you guys so much for coming out on this crazy day. Um, Yeah. Thank you guys for pulling us off, Um, Annie and Laura and Jennifer. So um, we've kind of got a, the way I guess I work is that I work on a bunch of things for many years and then a bunch of things come out at once. And that's sort of what's happened here. Uh, One of the things is this book, uh, A Manner of Being, Writers on Their Mentors, which Karen described very well. And I don't have much more to say about it other than it's, it's just a really important book to me because, you know, um, I don't know, I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't meet this guy, uh, Arthur Flowers, when I was about 22 years old. He tried to teach me to write. And I just want to read a little piece from this. Um, I'm going to read a piece from Teori Jones' essay on Ron, Ron Carlson. And I think, it's, I think it's really important. I think it's deadly important. This may be one of the most important things. See what you think. This is Harry Jones talking about Ron Carlson. Being a writer is all about making mistakes and managing disappointment. Let's say you're going on a road trip. You get, say, 100 miles down the road, and you realize that you've left your wallet back home on the kitchen table. You have no choice but to go back and get it. But how's your attitude? A, do you curse yourself as you make that U-turn and head back home? Continue cursing until you have the wallet in hand. Grumble still as you head back out, unable to relax again until you've recovered the 100 miles. Are you, for the rest of the journey, thinking about how much farther you would be if only you had not been so stupid to forget your wallet there at the beginning? B. Do you slap yourself on the forehead when you realize the wallet is lost and pout all the way home? Once you get home, do you pack yourself a nice lunch and set out again in good spirits? C. When you realize the wallet is lost, do you say, thank God I realized that I forgot my wallet. (laughs) Then do you drive home with the radio blasting, singing your favorite song? Person C is the one who's going to make it, Teari says. Writing a novel is all about forgotten wallets. I think that's true. Um, So there's this technique sometimes employed um, called found poetry. I was one day, I, was, I really liked this uh, basketball player, Meta World Peace, and he said very uh, funny things. So I was just obsessed with what he was saying, and I was copying them out and putting them on a sticky note on my computer. And then one day I needed, I had a bunch of them there, and I needed a little more screen real estate, so I kind of moved the, uh, you know, I sort of moved the, the little sticky note in, made it narrow, and all the lines broke. And I started reading it, and I was like, whoa, 
That sounds pretty good. And I did a little tinkering with it. Um, and I wrote this poem, I think. Um, <laughs> it's called Erratic Fire, Erratic Passion. These are all post-game interview quotes with Metal World Peace. I don't shake substitution's hands. I lose my feet. I'd like to thank my psychiatrist. I felt something, but I didn't know it was an actual head. <laughs> I knew somebody suffered something at that point. There were a lot of emotions in that game. I can't worry about that. I have to try to get the ball. Kobe passed me the ball. Kobe never passed me the ball. And I could hear Phil Jackson, he's the Zen master, so you can just hear him in your head saying, don't shoot, don't shoot, and bam, I shot it. <laughs> I was lying down when I got hit with a liquid, ice and glass on my chest and on my face. Nobody ever just threw anything at me, with the exception of a few times. <laughs> After that, it was self-defense. I'll take the blame for that. It's my fault. Stunned, so stunned. It's stunning. Erratic fire, erratic passion. We maximize it by playing together, loving each other, caring for each other. Kind of like the Care Bears. You know the Care Bears? They care for each other. I partied in July hard. You got to party. You can't just be a boring guy for 12 months, right? You got to party hard in July. <laughs> Why are you staring at me, daughter? Did you throw that? Jack, you think we're going to get in trouble? Let me see how I can answer your question without giving you a good quote. <laughs> So me and this guy, this writer named Pashamala, we just uh, basically listened to hundreds of hours of, uh, of YouTube videos and, and plagiarized them into this book. So here's one more by Anna Kornikova. Do you guys remember her? I am beautiful, famous, and gorgeous. I have a lot of boyfriends. I want you to write that. Every country I visit, I have a different boyfriend, and I kiss them all. A court is like a scene. People want to see attractive people. I think that tennis is a ladies' sport, so we should look out there like ladies. It's true I always try to be as seductive as possible, but I wouldn't be here if I couldn't play tennis. I'm like a menu at an expensive restaurant. You can look at me, but you can't afford me. <laughs> the world believes all blondes are stupid and brunettes are smarter. Well, I disagree. Judgment is judgment, whether you're obese or too skinny or not athletic enough. I think it's really important for me not to forget where I came from. I grew up a little girl in the Soviet Union playing at a small sports club. At this year's Open, I'll have five boyfriends. <laughs> so
So I was going to read something um, kind of serious. And I just, I can't read that now after being in an office for two hours in the dark, <laughs> listening to these spooky messages uh, come across campus. At one point, we couldn't understand if they were saying something about firearms or should we call the fire department. Uh, so I'm going to read this story that I just uh, <coughs> finished up. I don't actually know. I have no idea if it's any good or not. But I think it's, uh, it's just a bit lighter, just feels a bit more uh, for the mood. It's called Hero. The cereal butt squeezer got my mom in the Albertsons cereal aisle. The local news broadcast the Albertsons CCTV video. The footage showed her reaching for my golden grams while a man backed into the frame. When he was close, too close, his hand fell to her butt. What were you thinking at this moment, the TV journalist asked my mom. I thought I'd been bumped, she said. He said, excuse me. It took a moment to realize what had happened. He didn't have a cart or a basket. He didn't take any cereal. And then he just walked away. And that's what the CCTV video showed. The man walking away while my mom stood there with my golden grams. We watched in our living room. Dad held mom on the couch. I lay on the floor, my chin propped in my palms. Why did you decide to come forward? The journalist asked. The detective told me this had happened to others, my mom said. I thought it might help catch the guy. I wasn't harmed, but I felt violated and afraid. Violated and afraid, the reporter repeated. Anyone with information on this serial butt squeezer, call the Crime Stoppers line. And as long as he's on the loose, watch your backs and your bottoms. You're a hero, Dad said to Mom. I went to my room to play a new video game in which I'm a kid whose mother thinks God ordered her to kill her son and comes after him, me, with a kitchen knife. I escape into the basement where I do battle for some reason against piles of shit with eyeballs. My weapons are projectile tears. At school, the kids were bloodthirsty and waiting. I had already long been called Blowjob Junior because my mom was BJ the Clown. Why BJ? Why not MJ the Clown, or JR the Clown, or ZZ the Clown, or surely her own name the Clown, or anything except BJ? Did BJ have some meaning? Did it stand for anything? Nothing. Nada. After the TV interview, a new title was added to my schoolyard sobriquet queue. Hey, Blowjob Junior, son of the squeeze of the cereal butt squeezer, Scott Beavis said. Do you think that dude would have squeezed your mom's butt if she was wearing her Blowjob the Clown senior uniform? Mike Reed held a pretend microphone in front of my face and said, is your mom's butt squishy or firm? The public has a right to know. <laughs> no comment, I said. Then I trudged to first period, where I sat next to Jarita, who leaned over and said, I hope your mom's okay. 
She wasn't harmed, I said. Still, Jarita said, I wouldn't want my butt grabbed by some weird creepo. There was something so nice about hearing Jarita say grabbed instead of squeezed. If I heard the word squeezed one more time in relation to my mom's butt, I thought I might throw up. More than a dozen other victims came forward, all middle-aged women with stories like my mom's. In a follow-up, the TV journalist enumerated the locations of the incidents, Costco, Super Walmart, Eckerd's, Family Dollar, mailboxes, etc. It turns out the journalist quipped, the serial butt squeezer has quite a reach. I stood behind Mike Reed in the cafeteria line for the Friday taco bar, and he kept squawking, accusing me of squeezing his butt. Let's call the resource officer on him, Mike, Scott Beavis said. We'll get you on the news. What a scoop. Blowjob Jr., son of the squeeze of the serial butt squeezer, is a homo butt squeezer in his own self. I made three soft tacos and sat by myself and cried at more piles of shit on my phone. BJ's Parties, Inc. saw an uptick in business, which was good for my mom and bad for me, but mom said everything that was for the good of BJ's Parties, Inc. was for the good of the whole family. This was her favorite phrase for guilting me and do whatever. Mom had started turning me out as a superhero for BJ's Parties, Inc. children's parties when I was 12. I had no choice in the matter. It's for the good of the family, she would say. She didn't pay me directly, but she used the money to buy my school clothes and supplies and supplement my allowance for the occasional video game. The problem was that I was short for my age, chicken-legged and bony. The homemade get-up sagged across my concave chest and bunched at my narrow ankles. Birthday boys oogled me with disappointment. Over dinner, Mom said that she needed a Superman for a Portuguese kid's birthday Sunday. I oughtn't to have felt like telling her she embarrassed me enough by being a clown and having a profane clown name and getting her butt squeezed and going on the TV news about it but I did feel like telling her that. Instead, I said, all right, mom. The Superman getup was blue pajamas with an S silk screened across the chest, a red nylon cape, and shiny black sock boots. Over that went a Clark Kent ensemble made from a Goodwill suit, the slacks rigged with Velcroed seams running down the legs for more dramatic tearing off a white polyester button-up, glasses with clear lenses, and gelled hair. The whole Portuguese family came out to greet us, and I was mortified to see Jurita standing next to the birthday boy, her little brother, Joaquim. My mom ran down the driveway to wish Joaquim happy birthday in her squeaky, high-pitched BJ the Clown voice. What color and animal were his faves? Green and slow loris, he said. She fished a long green balloon from her back pocket, blew it up, and twisted it into the shape that she made for any favorite animal from approximately otter to bear. <laughs> Joaquim took it. 
That's no slow loris, he said. Right you are, birthday boy. That is no slow loris, BJ the clown said. It is a near cousin of the slow loris, however. The slow loris sovereign. Joaquim looked at the green balloon animal. A slow loris sovereign. BJ the clown winked at Joaquim and he darted around back, growling and shouting, Slow Laura Soverin, slow Laura Soverin. Me and Seal the Mime and Willie, an insurance agent who likes wearing a giant party rack costume on the weekends, unloaded the parachute and milk crates of supplies. Hey, Jarita said, you clean up all right. Yeah, I said, hey. I opened the top buttons on my shirt so that she could see the S. No way, she said. You're my brother's man of steel. You going to leap our house in a single bound? I was thinking to, yeah. Also maybe bend a few steel bars, save the day, reverse the earth's rotation. Jarita laughed. Very cool, man. Come on, I'll show you where the action is. And by action, I mean 20 sugar stone nut balls. I followed her inside where we found Jarita's mom and BJ hugging in the kitchen. We froze. BJ looked at us. The black pyramids under her eyes smeared. BJ never broke character. BJ did not cry. Jarita whispered, the butt squeezer got my mom too. She didn't report it. Girl talk, Jarita's mom said. The left side of her face had a ghost image of BJ's left cheek, white with a red dimple. Bathroom, Mom said. Bud, get Seal and Willie spreading out the parachute, would you? Yeah, Mom, I said. Yeah, BJ, she said. While BJ and company did their parachute thing, I sized up the trampoline. Jarita had given me an idea. I dragged the trampoline closer to the house, then went around and climbed onto the roof from the front porch railing. At the top, I posed. BJ noticed me and got the picture. Say, Joaquim, she said, do you hear something? What, he said. BJ pointed. Is it a bird? A plane? The kids looked. I took the glasses off and unbuttoned my shirt. They cheered when they saw the S. I let the sport coat and shirt fall. I yanked the pants, but the Velcro held. I yanked again and whoosh. I stood with my hands on my hips and stared heroically at a cloud. The rest of the family came into the yard to see. Jarita's mom and dad and Jarita and an older boy. He was holding hands with Jarita, Scott Beavis. He smiled like he couldn't believe his luck. I peered over the edge of the roof. My sock boot slipped on a loose shingle and BJ's hand shot to her mouth. It looked a lot higher than it had from the ground and I was wobbly, but I jumped anyway. Hit the trampoline right where I aimed and it shot me high and far. Superman flew. It would have been perfect had I got my feet under me but my shoulder hit the ground first and I buckled. I wheezed. I heard Joaquim say, is Superman all right? <laughs> and I looked up into BJ's clown face. Breathe, bud, she said, breathe. Someone must have slipped kryptonite into his pajamas, Scott Beavis said. And Jarita said, shut it, Scott. <laughs> <laughs>
Seal and the party rat led me to the car while BJ closed things out. I was fine after all, except my shoulder turned the color of a turnip. I tried to not think about the torture material Scott Beavis was dreaming up and played my game. I had eviscerated enough piles of shit to win a dead cat with nine extra lives, and I graduated to fighting toothy maggots and daddy long legs. When I got to the last level, where you go mano a mano against the god-crazed mom, she stomped me with these big red heels, sending me back to the beginning. We stopped by Albertsons to pick a few things up. BJ leapt around, hemming it up for everyone in the store. She gave me the grocery list and disappeared into the bathroom to take off her makeup and change. Over the Superman pajamas, I wore the white Clark Kent button-up, untucked, and the thrift store blazer and Velcro pants. I didn't even pick up my feet, preferring the sound the sock boots made sliding over the polished linoleum. I found everything except pomegranates. My mom made a dish with pomegranate seeds, but I only knew what the seeds looked like. I shook all the gourds to hear if anything rattled inside them. <laughs> Finally asked a stock boy a little older than me. I envied him his non-humiliating job. He pointed to a bin of dry-skinned ovals, which I was picking through, when I noticed the woman bent over in the meats. She wasn't decrepit old, but she was older than my mom old. You could tell she had trouble bending over. A man facing me back toward her. I instantly knew him from the CCTV footage a classical vocalist version of Don't Stop Believin' played. <laughs> the stock boy was gone. When the man's hand fell to her butt, she jumped. He said something to her, snatched a package of meat, and walked away. She stared after him, and then her glance met mine. I looked down at the pomegranates. My mom appeared. She had splotches of white makeup on her neck, and her face was shiny. The wig and hat and the baggy bright clothes that made her BJ were stuffed in a beat-up plastic Dillard's bag, and she was just my regular embarrassing mom again. Did you get everything, bud, she said. Everything except pomegranates, I said. She picked some up. You want one that feels heavy for its size, she said, and the skin should be bright red or yellow. We checked out. I carried the grocery bags, and she looped her arm around my arm. On the elbow tray of the blood pressure machine, just before the exit, lay a package of pork chops, a four-pack of pork chops, the cellophane, the cellophane wet with condensation. It was brave, that stunt you pulled today, my mom said. Thanks a lot. so much. Karen gave a beautiful introduction, but I just have to say, uh, Let Me Explain You is probably the funniest novel I've read in like five years. Among other things, there's a goat of death in it. Annie Leontis, straight from California. Thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, this was a memorable and uh, unexpected welcome from UMass and uh, 
my <laughs> wife and I were uh, holed up in UMass Hotel, so I don't think I'll forget about that for a while. Um, I just want to thank uh, Parker and Jennifer um, and all of the great people here, Anne, who've uh, worked really hard to make this happen tonight. Um, we will get to Austria another night, I think. Uh, and I think this is a, and, and thank you, Karen, for that lovely introduction. I'm glad I can be of some use. <laughs> um, also, uh, this feels like such a great night and moment to christen a manner of being, um, which for me is, it's really a project of love. When Parker asked me to join him, I was really thrilled. And, um, and there's so much uh, just, genuine appreciation in this book, you know, which feels quite fitting for tonight. So I'm going to read a little uh, excerpt from Pam Houston's uh, submission on uh, U.S. Army Sergeant Martha Washington. So Pam, um, her parents are alcoholics and, uh, and Martha Washington was sort of the only or maybe the primary force of stability in her young life. She came in when uh, Pam was only two years old. Um, so I'll just read a, a brief excerpt of that. She taught me to swim and to dive that way, a nickel for the length of the pool, a dime for jumping, a quarter for diving headfirst. She taught me how to hold the door for anyone older than me by freezing stock still on the opposite side of it, waiting for me to realize I had forgotten. Maybe most importantly, she taught me that love could be unconditional that some people did keep their promises, that gratitude is an appropriate response to almost everything, that generosity is, in fact, its own reward. On lobster night in Seaside Heights, we'd go down to the fish market, and Martha would buy three one and a quarter pound lobsters, and she'd ask the man to cook them up. He'd give us sliced lemons wrapped in tin foil and melted butter in a plastic container, and then we'd cross Highway 35, and walk home, and Martha would spread about five tons of newspaper across the kitchen table, and we'd dig in like Viking queens, lobster juice up to our ears. I didn't understand fixed income back then, or Social Security, or Medicare, but I heard my parents say the words, and I knew enough to understand that our yearly lobster feast was no small thing for Martha. After her first stroke, Martha said she was ready to die, that she'd had 86 of the best years anybody could ask for, and it was okay to go, but four days later, the next stroke took her voice and left her silent and sad for three years after that. When she could still talk, she used to say, you've got to promise me one thing, and that is that you won't come to my funeral. I want you to remember the good times we had without mucking them up with the bad. I made good on my promise, though my mother called me heartless, as cold through and through as my father. And my father said, if I can be there when they put the old battle axe in the ground, so can you. It's been 30 years since Martha died, and in that time I've mentored a goddaughter, a stepdaughter, and several hundred creative writing students of all ages. I think I can say honestly that a day has not gone by, that I haven't thought of her, that I haven't invited, sometimes effectively, sometimes not so, her patience and wisdom into my own demeanor, that I haven't stopped to think, what would Martha Washington do? And more than either of my parents, she's the person I have become. In the way I'll roll my sleeves up and crawl under the furniture with anybody if that's what's required. In the way I've taught everyone I've even dated for five minutes to play the game casino. Honestly, if you meet someone who knows how to play, I've probably slept with him. In the way I still know the names and locations of all the stars. 
I can still see her standing with her arms crossed at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, her eyes never leaving my small bobbing frame. And I know that I can trace every decent thing about myself back to her devotion and the way she'd lock my hand inside of hers each morning as we stepped into the path of oncoming cars. Uh, and I, I love that for, uh, you know, for how she thinks, you know, the, the person who taught her how to live and keep on living and being her best self. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, I'd love to read from my novel tonight. Um, thank you again for this opportunity. I'm, I'm thinking I'll read the introductory letter uh, that helps you get to know the main character, Stavros, Stavros Mavrakis. Um, it's been a sort of uh, crazy couple of weeks. I recently relocated to California to be at UC Davis for uh, the next six months. And uh, I was having some trouble sleeping, maybe in the relocation. And then uh, all of a sudden, one of my characters started to get insomnia. And uh, <laughs> last week, I fell off my bike and got a concussion. And it looks like he's got one of those, too. <laughs> I think it just all goes in. <laughs> So um, all you have to know about this is that it's an email. <clears throat> From Steve Stavros Stavros Mavrakis, Greek Boss One at Yahoo.com. Subject, our father who is dying in 10 days. Dear family, daughters, and ex-wife, <laughs> let me explain you something. I'm sick in a way that no doctor would have much understanding. I'm sick in a way of the soul that, yes, God will take me. No, I'm not a suicide. I'm deeper than that. I'm talking more than that. Dear Stavrula, my oldest, please grow out your hair. It is very, very short. You will see what I'm, uh, this is, uh, sorry. This is one little thing that, you can that can change everything. You will see what I'm saying when you take this small but substantial advice. Sometimes if we are who we are supposed to be on the outside, we are who we are supposed to be on the inside. The hair is the thing to trust and leave alone, and it will take care of you. Let me explain you something. Your father has seen some of the world for it to be enough. There's a way to be for the normal society, and you are not in it. The hair says things about you that, yes, they are true, but the hair is not a fortune teller. The hair is not the thing that has to point the way, like a street light. I'm not somebody religious, but this I know. Death is coming. In 10 days, I promise you, your father, the man will cease. He will be dust. He will be food in the worms. What do we owe our father? This is the question you can say to yourself at this time. <laughs> Who can deny a dead man, a dead father, the thing that he demands? Dear Leeds and my second, please go to church. You can say, no, dad, you go to church. Then we will talk about it if I go to church. But what I'm talking about here are lessons that I should have taken for myself if my father had the wisdom to give me awareness, which I am holding out for you. Lisa, let me explain you something. Lisa, you have problems. Lisa, nobody marries for a big wedding and then divorce one week later. When your mother and I divorced, it took years off our life. Lisa, nobody destroys property the way when you come here into my diner and smash the dessert case with my own stool. The same is true for your sister, which you take that same stool and break her car window with it, even though you deny this always. Are you on drugs, Lisa? Are you the same lowlife as your biological mother, Dina? 
Lisa, you need God in your life. I see how much helping you are needing, and I know that God has to exist because he is the only one who can do for you. I cannot do for you. I can only do for you what I am done for you. And here I will tell you this secret, that I have questions for God. Are you real? Are you here for me, Stavros, Stavros, Steve Mavrakis? Am I your forgotten son? What is the meaning of this life that is too sorry for what it could be? Even though I have succeeded more, much more than any foreigner would do in my country, and I have now two diners and plans for selling one of them so that I have a little something for the future. Yours, not mine, since my future is not something I can belong to any longer. And not your mother, since she's a thief. I'm sorry if that's a truth. I, Stavros Stavros, have asked God to erase the mistakes of my life, and God has answered in a matter of speaking that it is best to start over, which requires foremost that we end all that is Stavros Stavros. No, not with suicide, with mercy. Yes, Lita, you must go to church to pray. For your father, yes, and for yourself. Dear Ruby, my little one, that I have adoration. It is a good rule to follow that if the mustache is weak, so will be the man. <laughs> you guys don't really have a problem with that. <laughs> Look at your father's mustache, which it is a fist. Forget the boys, Ruby. Find yourself a man who encourages you get your own education because you don't want to be one of those women who takes and takes and does not appreciate all the way her husband slaves, like your mother. Don't go marrying some losers, which you know I am talking about Dave. <laughs> Why choose a man with the facial hair of an onion? When you can instead choose one of my assistant cooks who make a decent living and has dreams of owning their own diner the way their mentor has, which is your father. Otherwise, you are doing okay. There's my ex-wife, Carol, the mother who divorced me one year ago, which I'm still, as a generous person, paying for things like to repair the plumbing. I'm talking to the woman who is still my wife in death, even if she did not know how to mourn me in life. Please be the ex-wife a wife should be in sickness and health. Even though you poison Stavrula and Lita against me from the moment I bring them into this fat country and Ruby from the moment you bring her into the world. That is why I'm asking you should wear only black for the next year to show a sign of honor for the man who walked much of this life with you by his side. If you have any confusions, daughters and wife, you can email a response. I will answer them all. <laughs> Such as what is missing for a man at the end of his life when the path is clear and wisdom is the greatest? The respect and love for the pateras. Signed, within 10 days of life left and a dying promise, your father, Stavros Stavros Steve Mavrakis. So uh, a, big, um, a big part of the process of this book was getting to the uh, inner workings of Stavros's heart, because he holds even his author at arm's length. Um, and that required that me, that I go back in time, that was the concussion, that I go back in time and get a chance to know him as a young man in Greece before he immigrated. Um, so I'm going to read a, a scene from his wedding night, his uh, first wife, Dina. Um, the only thing you really need to know is that this is uh, an arranged marriage. Um, and uh, it's after the sort of ceremony has completed. 
Stavros Stavros was fat and full at the end of the night. He had ruled the village, his family, and it made him feel virile. All he needed now was to deflower a virgin. Everyone knew it was a man's right to unmake a woman. Everyone knew it was their right to see proof of the unmaking. It was customary for the groom's parents to drape the white sheets of a newly consummated couple against the house, the copper crop visible from way down the road. In the history of the village, few women had ever failed to bleed, a cripple, a slut, a rape victim. And that was because women were pure, women were pious, women were chaste, and when they weren't, women were shrewd enough to cover up their bloodlessness. Even their boyfriends who panted themselves into premarital sex with their soon-to-be brides were always satisfied when the warm, rusty liquid bubbled up on the night of the wedding. Concerned with shame and self-preservation, these women knew to tuck pouches of sow's blood inside themselves. Dina, who hadn't been from the island in years, knew nothing and did nothing. She just lay there beneath her grunting, fat, full husband. Stavros Stavros coached himself to keep going. The first time was always difficult for the woman, especially if the man was more shovel than man, which he was tonight especially. Then he realized the problem. He scrambled off the bed. There's no blood. Dina pulled her underwear up from her knees. You said you wanted an American. Stavros Stavros yanked his shorts on. Not this American, he said. No, he couldn't believe this was happening. The night had been perfect, everything as it should be. Now he was facing clean sheets. Stavros Stavros ripped them away. You aren't going to sleep. You're going to help me figure this out. Dina spun and pulled the sheets free too fast for him to anticipate. There's nothing to figure out. You got what you got, just like I got what I got. His chest heaved. He wanted to shout, tell her what a sisamani she was. There'd never been a dirtier bitch, but that would send his mother running. Here he was, waiting for their wedding night like it was something special, something needing patience and, on, and honor. And meanwhile, Dina Putana had taken all those dirty pipes. But he couldn't let that thought overwhelm him right now. Right now, he had to resolve this before anyone discovered their shameful secret. He tore the sheets off Dina. He saw her as he shut the door at the bottom of the bed, a crumpled person. In the dark hallways, uh, hallway, he tripped over a potted plant, scattering dirt. He bit his cheek to keep from crying out. If anyone woke now, he would be a joke. Stavros Stavros Mavrakis, shoeless, pantsless, with a broken wife and a broken toe. His big toe complained that he was a fool alone in his misery. But he was not going to stand here and be ridiculed by his family or his own foot. He limped to the porch, balled up the sheets beneath the stairs leading to the roof. Then he limped out to the chicken coop. In the moonlight, a line of chickens squatted on planks. They perked up when he pulled a sack off the wall, thinking it might be a second feed time, something that happened occasionally to encourage phallic euphoria and the production of eggs. The chickens clucked, but when no kernels appeared, they bobbed their necks in suspicion. This was not Stavros Constantine, they realized. This was not feed time, when the bright orange bowl fills the sky and signals to their ovaries that it's time to release egg cells. This was a fox or a dog. Stavros Stavros stepped over damp, shit-smelling hay, his eyes on the smallest bird. She had her head tucked in a wing but shook awake. Don't worry, little Kutopolo, he whispered. I only need one leg, not even one leg, one toe. You will not miss it. 
The chicken squawked. He lunged. She flapped her wings, half flew to a higher beam. He ran after her, sack raised over his head. Loose feathers, old lady clucks, a frantic instinct to get out of reach, which they all did. Stavros Stavros was panting. What he needed was a knife, a big knife, a butcher knife from his mother's kitchen that no chicken had ever said no to. The porch light was on. It had not been on before. He walked slowly. He debated about climbing through a window, but there was no other way to get to the kitchen. He decided to go forward. He had no choice. If it were his father, he'd probably pass out at the table. If it were Dina, he would make her come out to the coop with him. It was his mother, sitting with a cup of tea at the table, face and hair still ensnared in sleep. On the table was a fork and bowl of lemon potatoes, his favorite. It's late, Mitera. You should be asleep, she chuckled. My son telling me about my empty bed when he is out of his. She tossed him a pair of sandals. He did not put them on. I know your feet must be ice blocks. You hate to go barefoot. Why are you having tea by yourself in the middle of the night? That is a good question. Here's a better one. You have a bride, but you are out molesting my chickens. <laughs> there was a stray dog. I chased it off. Oh, so you left your first night with Dina to check on the animals. She must have been pleased. Stavros Stavros said nothing. Katerina stood, walked around the table, led him to a chair. She slipped the sandals onto his feet. Even when she scrubbed floors, she did not kneel. But here she was kneeling before him on the one night he did not deserve it. She speared a potato on the fork. He took a bite, the potato melting on his tongue. She had warmed them. You think your mother does not see what is going on, she said. But that is because you have the milk eyes of a newborn cat. Stavros Stavros ate another potato and another. Katerina pulled the bundle of sheets from beneath the table. Tell your mother, she said. She will help you fix it. He tried to take another bite and couldn't. The tears were coupling, falling. It's not your problem. Oh no, Stavraki, that's exactly what it is. He began to sob. He knew she would label him impotent, cuckolded, just like the rest of the village. She's a whore, he said quietly. You had me marry a whore. Katerina did not ask Stavros Stavros to acknowledge that the arranged marriage had been his idea. She reached across the table. The best thing to do with rotten meat, she said, is send it back, not cry over it. It's too late, he said, there's nothing you can do. There's a saying, she said, standing. It's the old chicken who has the juice, and I, Stavro, have plenty juice left. Within minutes, six of them were seated in the visiting room to discuss the problem. Dina sat with her chin on her knees. It was not satisfying because she would not raise her head to receive their judgment. Michalis was stern looking in wide tinted glasses. Someone Stavros did not want to come up against, but not someone Stavros feared. His dark hair flat against his head, only the strands near his forehead daring to break free. His huge nose, which might have appeared clownish on another man, gave him the look of an animal that lived close to the ground made to scrounge. Two deep frown lines cutting down his face indicated that smile, smiling was a trial. We've had a difficult time with her in the States, Michalis apologized uncharacteristically. We thought things would get better once she found a husband. 3,000 drachmas, Katerina answered, or she goes back alone. Stavros Stavros looked up in surprise. What was she doing? She'd said nothing about money. 
Irini cringed. You ask too much. What is too much is that you allowed your daughter to spoil, then you give her to my son, pretending she is fresh enough for marrying. Stavrostavros saw now, the potatoes, the sandals, the kneeling, it was just business. His mother cared about her, his honor only if it mattered to her pocket. Michalis raised his hand. It's fine, he said, we will honor it. Dina's eyes flicked from one person to the next, reminding Stavrostavros of the crazed chickens in the coop. He suddenly felt like one of those chickens too. She said, I'm not going back with him. It will cost you 3,000 drachmas, Katerina said, and you will buy his airfare. Irini threw her hands up. No, that is the line for me. There's another saying, Katerina said, and that is that when you bring a chicken to the table, somebody has to pluck the ass. <laughs> Mahali's mouth became very tight. As a Greek man, it was his prerogative to explode into expletives when being robbed, but he understood this was a sensitive situation. Yes, he said, we will do it. I won't, Dina said. She looked at Stavros Stavros. You see what's happening? They want to get rid of you as, get rid of you as bad as they want to get rid of me. The Sisameni, the liar. He should have known not to trust her the minute he saw one of her eyes wasn't trustworthy. But Stavros Stavros looked to his mother. Was it true? Were they trying to get rid of him? Katerina, in response, came to Dina. Kukla, she said, do you know what your first mistake was? Marrying your son? Before that, Dina, Solon, coming back to this goat fucking country? Before that, being born? Being born a woman, Katerina corrected, a Greek woman, and she went out. She returned with a chicken. It clucked in alarm, knowing instinctively that being in a house meant danger. This was her big plan all along, his plan? Yes, Katerina said, and it will work. Everyone present would swear to it. Stavros Stavros was pulled into the kitchen. They stood at the sink where Katerina gripped the bird by the neck. Mahalis held, held the sheet. Stavros Stavros dumbly took the knife from his mother. He looked at Dina, who stood as far away as she could without stepping out of the kitchen. Her feet were inexplicably dirty. She seemed to blend in with the pile of potatoes that had just been dug up. No, he and his wife were not the same. He closed his eyes. Katerina stopped his elbow, one leg only. I don't need a bloodbath. If there's too much, the gossips will know. Am I doing this or you? Katerina looked at him for a long time and stepped back. He kept his eyes open this time, ignoring the clucks that sounded too much like his wife in their marital bed. A deep red gash appeared on the bird's leg and she cried and flayed her feathers. Much desired drops darkened the sheet. Katerina turned to Dina. Ella she said, and right there in the kitchen, she smeared some of the chicken blood onto her daughter-in-law's thighs. It was as if Dina didn't feel it happening until it was already done, because she slapped at Katerina's hands just as she was pulling away. Katerina ignored it. She instructed her not to bathe in the morning. If anyone demanded proof, it would be there. Stavros Stavros wanted to run from the farm, from the red in the sink that was suddenly the price for America. Watching his mother shove her hands between his wife's legs, he felt sick for them both. He saw Dina's eyes when his mother handled her and understood she was suffering. Maybe she deserved it, but it was shameful and sad. He turned now to look at his pitiful wife with eyes of ripped cloth. This was real now. He was bound to this marriage. There'd been an arrangement and a wedding, yes, but this clandestine act was what joined him to Dina. Thank you so much.